the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Over the last three decades, technology has digitized many different forms of media, from books and music to newspapers, television and film. Now we can see money undergoing the same digital transformation. In finance, digitization is taking place at the most fundamental level, that is, across the payment networks, clearing systems and custodian institutions that act as the backbone of the system. If we can think in terms of electricity, a lot of complex old wiring may end up being ripped out and replaced by a few gleaming new cables. But can anyone tell us what the circuit map of the new financial system will look like? I'm not sure anyone yet knows. But one of the best people to give us a hint of what's going on is Ruth Van Tuffer, my guest on this episode of the podcast. Ruth is a former investment banker who now works as an advisor and board member for a range of clients. Those include traditional finance firms in the form of banks and stock exchanges to newer market entrants, such as software and cryptocurrency businesses. Ruth, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Could you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about what you do and the areas you work on? Yes, so I've been in banking for more than a decade. Um, I left Citigroup last year and now I do a mix of different jobs. I have three non-executive director roles, one at the London Stock Exchange Group, one at Permanent TSB, an Irish bank, and one at Pendo Systems, a US data analytics company. And in addition to those three, I'm a partner in a small venture capital fund called Gauss Ventures, where we invest in high-impact technologies. And I also advise a number of fintechs, including CoinFirm, in the space of crypto anti-money laundering solutions. So all those roles in some way touch upon what we could call market infrastructure? Market infrastructure, regulation, financial services, technology. Okay, great. I'd like to start by asking you a very general question. Um, one, one thing that uh, I noticed from the financial crisis which took place in 2008, 2009 was that there was a, a big push towards centralization, more power to central banks, more trading put onto central, uh, put, put through central counterparties, derivatives trading. At the same time, that was the that was the point in time where cryptocurrencies were, were invented, and that's kind of the opposite trend. Uh, move towards decentralization. So, how are those two trends uh, kind of going forward? Are they are they continuing to operate in parallel? How, how can we make sense of what's going on? Yeah, in in an interesting way, the crypto rise with the Bitcoin white paper was a reaction to the fact that the financial industry, the vested interest within it, the regulation and also the oversight and forbearance were the result um, that resulted in the financial crisis itself. And there's a very critical point also about quantitative easing, bailing out banks, and the fact that all of this was done not with the foresight of knowing what would happen as a consequence in the markets over time. And so the idea of doing something outside the regulated system was a very clever, interesting one, a bit libertarian, you might say. It was certainly not designed to be facilitating fraud, but it was more designed to show that there's an alternative to to do things. But of course, there is a complete dependency still on the financial system, because even if any user today wants to use Bitcoin, they tend to move fiat currency into Bitcoin and back. So from a mainstream perspective, both markets are connected intrinsically. Um, Now, the reaction of the regulator was to reinforce the centralized systems, promote more the use of CLS, central bank settlement, um, and also the regulation around it. And of course, we've seen even more quantitative easing and we're still not down the line as to, as to understanding what it really means uh, for the market. So parallel events, um, I think over time now the financial industry 
looked at the innovation sort of testing ground of, of what I can maybe call Bitcoin as an example of these new type of cryptocurrencies um, and has, has looked first with fear, oh, someone can do something behind our backs. Uh, but increasingly, certain parts of the market are looking at in terms of can we extract some elements of the technology innovation that also itself continues to evolve to see if we can increase efficiencies in our existing systems. And certainly there's an overall understanding that you need some level of coordinated governance, which in Bitcoin isn't very well executed because sometimes you may miss a bug because your governance isn't very strong. It's a group of coders that have a consensus, but they don't necessarily all operate in a very clear governance model, whilst of course on the flip side in the regulated market you have very strict governance. So I think there's also this sort of push and pull about maybe we can things, make things a little bit more democratic but still accountable but extracting the value of transparency that we see in Bitcoin mm. to the financial markets. So you, you mentioned that the pe people in the traditional financial system reacted with fear or suspicion to the emergence of cryptocurrencies. Has that now changed? I think there is more of an understanding now that in the crypto world, apart from maybe one or two specifically designed currencies that have privacy embedded, you can actually trace individuals, you can trace money that is fraudulent, and companies like CoinFirm, etc., have those technology tools. So people have developed technologies to trace things much more effectively in the crypto market than in the traditional financial layered uh, sort of world. That is a fact, and that is something that law enforcement is waking up to quite slowly as well. The other thing is, of course, that people realize that the Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. experiment is still at a very small scale. We're not talking about very high volumes that could truly disrupt the traditional market. Now that has changed a little bit with the comments of Facebook uh, uh, planning to introduce Libra, which if you, you know, compute one to one may introduce more than two billion uh, users straight away. And of course that may have more significant impacts on the retail market, on central bank money, monetary policy, etc. And, and let's ask about, let's talk about the cryptocurrency community. The, how well do people within that community tend to be computer scientists or cryptographers by training, understand how the plumbing of the traditional financial system works? And does it matter if they don't understand it? Yeah, so I, I don't think that both markets understand each other too well. Um, there's certainly more of a sort of libertarian drive in the crypto world. There's also a lot about innovating new instruments that could enable you to raise funds. I mean, we've seen that with the ICOs, which were in part fraudulent because none of this was regulated, but increasingly also security tokens trying to increase access to investments and not only in the crypto world. That's where we see the sort of more regulated industry looking at technology such as tokenization platforms to think about how can we move regulated instruments onto a different platform and fractionalize and increase our investorship altogether. And that is why it was quite helpful that the US SEC has actually said, you know, security tokens are securities and therefore can be treated from a legal perspective in such a way. How you then execute the trading settlement execution um, is, is something that you can decide and you can certainly create more efficient platforms where you take out some of today's inefficient middlemen and you can increase the investment access and democratize it. How, how big a, ch a challenge is it that regulators around the world are very far from arriving at a common understanding for this new technology? It is very challenging because the technology is borderless, it's foundational, it's very much infrastructure focused. 
I think we've seen a little bit in the reaction to the announcement of Libra this summer that the central bank community at the core of the BIS, certainly the G7, has quite clearly said if any of this were to come into operation, it would need to be regulated before it actually switches on. So there's a clear conscious um, of that sort of approach. Uh, but when we look at sort of the private crypto space, which is quite different to a stable coin, private crypto is not backed by anything, uh, we certainly know that you can only regulate on the on and off ramps, you know, on the institutions where crypto exchanges hands with fiat, which is the crypto exchanges and ultimately banks accounts, but you cannot do really much within the network because obviously that is subject to a consensus proof of work algorithm. But the two communities, the traditional finance world and cryptocurrency world, are gradually moving together? Um, I think the crypto world is not really moving together at all with the financial world. Um, they are still very suspicious, I think, and, and also because it's a small-scale experiment, what's the, what's the benefit of it? I think the financial industry, and particularly also infrastructures, are increasingly looking at creating more efficient platforms to exchange value, to digitize assets. So it's all about digitizing the existing regulated assets, whether this fiat currency or a security or a bond, and executing trades or you know value exchanges of those on a different platform, which could in the future be a tokenized platform. So you're appropriating yourself of part of the infrastructure, but again, you, you would design your own. So you don't use the actual Bitcoin blockchain, you would use a closed user group blockchain where you distribute the consensus between nodes that have entitlement. You would also make sure that the consensus is truly on a specific transaction and full knowledge of it as opposed to a mathematical lottery. Um, and you would make sure that regulators can supervise and extract data if there's a suspicious transaction. We've seen a lot of the creation of a lot of consortium-based models to do this kind of work during the last few years. A lot of money has been spent on them. I sense from reading press headlines, redundancies taking place at some of the banks and some of the projects being wound down that they have not justified the levels of investment. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Yes, um, a lot of it was experimentation, but I would also say don't stop learning about this because mm. the market is evolving. I've seen very interesting companies and new patents in terms of actual consensus algorithms that move from blockchain to transaction chain to be truly scalable, like we would be in the payment space today with Visa or faster payment transactions, um, and that you also remove the sort of attack vector risk which in Bitcoin is 51%. There are other models with different attack vectors, but if you have low to no risk of attacking the validating node, then of course you get much cleaner consensus. So is it possible to imagine how this might all end up? Because I, you know, I'm old enough to remember that uh, stock trades on the London Stock Exchange used to take up to three weeks to settle. Then we gradually moved down to T plus seven, then T plus five, T plus three, T plus two. Can we get to near instantaneous settlement of stock and bond and other financial transactions. Yeah, so everything is linked. Um, what we are really looking for at the core is a sort of global cross-currency payment system, which we don't have. I think there you could start expanding the collaboration we've seen on the settlement coin project, which is all about increasing the velocity of central bank money across banks hanging off the central bank books to a collaboration cross-border in terms of FX and getting to a faster or near real-time effects. Of course, it has to do a lot with regulatory regime alliance because alignment because governments still want to keep the sovereignty of their currency, so that is a very sensitive part. But you need to fix that cash lag in order to enable the securities lag. So yes, today you can trade 
faster but the settlement that you talk about in terms of paying for it and also exchanging security with payment is still taking too long and in order to fix this you need to both fix the trading part as much as the actual settlement on the cash side so it has to go together but we do know that infrastructures are increasingly investigating and researching this space they're creating i mean very obvious cases private placements so the private assets out there you know outweigh all of the public listings by miles and if you were to bring more private assets into a tradable environment you could obviously unlock the value for the companies you could unlock the value for the investor and you could do that in a sort of token type platform where the trade would take milliseconds and the settlement would have to be assured in terms of that payment lag. Is it possible that certain countries emerging markets for example that have uh, gone further ahead with new types of payment technology could leapfrog the developed markets in this area? Yes, um, I definitely see that. Um, I mean, certainly when we talk about sort of sovereign currency payments, retail payments, we obviously know that China is very advanced with their project on creating a central bank digital currency. Um, this can be heavily debated across whether you want narrow banking and what the currency really should do, whether every individual now has a central bank account, which is not necessarily in the interest of commercial banks. The Chinese model will be quite Chinese, but that is obviously an element to facilitate this end-to-end -end speeding up of the process and taking out the settlement risk uh, on the other side. Um, we know that other countries are researching this more than actually executing, but in parallel we have of course the increase in real-time payment systems around the world. World. So whilst this is not the wholesale part that is the one I'm addressing when I talk about the cash lag and securities, we're starting to see infrastructures changing over time. We also start to see hybrid infrastructures like the new payments platform in Australia, which is central bank settled money for both retail and wholesale real time, near real time. And once you have those infrastructures in place, you could then simultaneously increase the settlement, the trading speed and settlement speed on the clearing side of the securities and bring the two together to have at least a domestic near real-time uh, effect. Is it possible to estimate how big the gain might be in, in economic terms from the efficiencies that these new technologies promise? Yes, yeah, so you, will, you will have that classical debate of vested interest versus efficiency. Um, this technology has the opportunity to bring in more transparency, which would be good on the one hand from a regulatory perspective, market abuse, better in the fight against anti-money laundering. At the same time, it would expose which actors are transacting with which actors, and that could counter against certain sovereign agendas. So it's a very sensitive space where certain countries at a domestic level will be able to take decisions and execute, but to get that cross-border effect will take longer. And if you think about initiatives like LSE uh, with the Shanghai Stock Connect, in order to promote those cross-border activities, we do really rely on both countries having more of a regulatory approach to converge, which of course at this point is not very likely. So it depends on a lot more factors as soon as you go cross-border. And is it fair to say that the central banks are nervous about, I know the Bank of England has made some changes in allowing tech firms some access to its uh, real-time gross settlement system, but is it fair to say that central banks in general are quite nervous about tinkering with the, the way the payment system works because it could have unforeseen consequences? Yes, and I mean, Bank of England was the first one to actually allow non-bank access to its system, so it's been very much advanced. But of course, it depends on how stable these non-banks are. I think there's an overarching concern across um, every government and, and, and sort of financial sector in terms of the role of big techs. 
you know, if a Facebook comes in, if a Google comes in and they suddenly go into payments and banking, then at the scale that they operate, everything changes. So all the initiatives we have in the UK and elsewhere in terms of increasing competition between banks, getting challenger banks and people operating under Basel rules, that will truly be disrupted if you have very big technology firms suddenly pivoting into banking. Yeah, and the Financial Stability Board has just released a report making very clearly the argument that uh, if you allow large tech firms to move into finance without a level playing field, they could quickly become almost unbeatable monopolies. They would be very difficult for banks to compete. Yes, so level playing field is key, <clears throat> but also supervision. And of course, supervising a large tech firm can be quite different to supervising a bank from a supervisor perspective. But has that already taken, have we missed the boat? Have regulators missed the boat? Because the FSB in its report has a chart, I, I was looking at it this morning, showing that the return on equity of the tech firms is over 30 and uh, for banks it's in single figures. Are we already too late to do anything about it? We've missed the boat in the sense that banks have shrunk to become underlying utilities that the big techs use. So whether it's an Apple uh, partnering with Goldman Sachs to issue cards, they're using obviously their banking license for that, or Google may be collaborating with Citi to offer current accounts. They're still running on the bank's license to do this. And so they have the customer relationship, they have all the value added platform business, whilst the banks are the ones that have all the regulatory capital to put to the side and provide the infrastructure resilience. And as big as these big techs are, the bigger they are, um, hanging off as a user of bank licenses, the more complicated it can get for the bank in terms of managing that scale. Because if anything goes wrong in a Google, um, you know, then a city has a problem because they're obviously the provider yeah. and have to stand in for anti-money laundering, Basel and other things. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about blockchain, if that's okay. In, if we look at financial history, how big an innovation is this? I think it's very foundational because it has the potential to change how players operate, how players make money. Um, it certainly has an element of reducing information asymmetries because it, it, op it offers open access. Um, and I think that's exactly where you could argue, you know, some providers and some roles in the market may become obsolete and that's why they are quite opposed to it. You know, you don't need necessarily middlemen for certain things, but also if you think about the liquidity dimension, blockchain as an example operates on, you have the Bitcoin, you pay someone and the Bitcoin are no longer there. You can't sort of shorten stock if you so wish. And I think this principle is of course very different to how the financial market operates, which is on credit. And we've seen throughout the financial crisis, it was all about liquidity management and transparency. That was the Achilles heel. Banks still haven't really improved that that much. People still rely on credit lines. And that's why initiatives like the SWIFT GPI cross-border provide more transparency at least so you know where something is stuck. But it doesn't sort of do away with the fact that everyone's interdependent on anyone. So as long as you bring more transparency into this interdependence network, at least you can know where the problem is. As opposed, and you can avoid a snowball impact, but we're still not at a point where people only spend the money they have. And that's why a settlement coin initiative is very relevant because it increases the velocity of money and therefore it allows people to have the money when they need it as opposed to needing to borrow it. Because so you're saying that if, if the velocity of uh, circulation of money increases at the wholesale level, 
there won't be so much need for people to borrow. Because you can much more easily switch then and you're getting paid earlier and therefore you may not need to rely on another credit line. Yes. Uh, so you're talking both at the wholesale level and the, and the retail level? Well, certainly the wholesale level. Retail level will still be netted off because you want to gain that netting benefit, but on the wholesale level you want to take out financial stability risk. So you're talking about initiatives like the utility settlement that's or right. coin yeah. and similar projects? Yeah, I think that's the key one in town at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it, it, certainly bankers have had a <clears throat> very negative press since the financial crisis, probably rightly so. Do you think tech firms are treated uh, equally uh, in people's eyes or do they, are they get an, uh, an unfair advantage? Do you think maybe the Facebook revelations, interference with, with fake news in political campaigns has addressed that a bit? What, how is this all evolving? Yeah, I think it depends on the type of big tech, but of course many big tech have so many product sets that touch the consumer and their day-to-day -day lives that it's very hard to become unpopular to the extent that banks have become unpopular. Uh, certainly Facebook obviously had that issue with, with data privacy um, and there is more of a wariness in the consumer that these big giants may do something with your data, they may not necessarily um, you know, follow the GDPR rules, certainly, you know, GDPR applies in Europe, it has to still apply in the US, so we're not talking about a level playing field on these le legislations. Um, but again, you know, if you're an Amazon customer, you know, you just shop your stuff and you don't think any further. And I think it's that consumer utility journey uh, experience and use that, you know, makes them still very favoured. Whilst, the tech firms, because yeah. we can all do things on our mobile phones that we couldn't do five exactly. years ago. Exactly, whilst the banks are sort yeah. of in the background and now we have an app, but it's not that much different. Right? Yeah. So what is, I mean, let's talk, talk about the impact of the Open Banking Initiative and the Payment Service Directive in, in, in Europe, which has yeah. opened up parts of the financial system to tech firms and probably helped the introduction of these new mobile services. Has that been in general a good thing? Some people have argued that it's given, again, tech firms access to bank data when there's not the reciprocal obligation. Yeah, so um, I mean one thing is banks had a lot of data for a lot long time and they've been always very reluctant to share this data because they were concerned about data privacy, which is actually a good thing because you want to trust your bank that they keep your data and your money safe and that's been the case. Um, PSD2 was very much driven from a competition agenda to bring more players into the payment value chain and create innovation where banks may have not innovated. On the flip side, it also got banks to a point where they said, well, we might as well use the data ourselves and create some more services. So at least it had an effect of you know, being a catalyst for banks to start innovating more. Uh, I think we're still at a very early phase because implementing those APIs that allow access for third parties has been a bit of a struggle. Banks are not necessarily... For the banks. Yeah, banks are not the most used to these sort of technologies, even though they've been around for many decades. Challenger banks find it much easier because they have a fresh tech stack where they can make adjustments very quickly. Things are starting to move, but what is still missing is sort of the digital identity piece. And if we look at it from a UK perspective, where we have, of course, the benefit of open banking with one streamlined API, if we think about it this way, um, we can certainly uh, get to a point where a digital identity in the middle that uses those open banking rails could truly make the difference and could also accelerate adoption. If we think about the infrastructure, it's still not fast enough. So if I want to shop in a supermarket and use my account via my mobile phone as opposed to my card, 
A faster payment still needs a few seconds to confirm. We still have indirect participants with credit lines where a settlement of a faster payment may still take a day. So the infrastructure itself has to actually come up to speed with what open banking from a data flow would enable. And that's of course what we are executing on the new payment architecture at this point, which is all about you know, redoing the retail infrastructure with all the API layers. And at the same time, we obviously have the review of the UK RTGS system, which is also everything's moving ISO and everything's gonna be API'd. Once that's in place, we can start to supercharge it. But I think having a digital identity piece bank assured in the middle will make it so much easier for any consumer to shop online using open banking. You mean that banks should be the, the people who, who control they, our digital identities? Yeah, I mean, they have already got your identity information in terms of all the KYC and AML rules that they have to apply, which is more assured and more regulated compliant than a sign-on with Facebook. So at the moment, we have sort of these two alternatives. The government verify was only designed for government-related services, which tend to happen once a year. So no one's been using this for anything else because it wasn't designed as such. So if we find something that would be more of a community solution within open banking, helping the banks to actually use that data, on your, subject to your consent, of course, we would actually get to a much better service for the corporates, which today have 20% uh, of transactions convert online, 80% don't. And they have a lot of fraud because people sign on, uh, sign on with Google, Facebook and other sort of not real IDs. What, what could be the, or could the cryptocurrency exchanges play a role in, the, in this area? Because a lot of them now, or most of them now have to comply with know your customer anti-money laundering requirements. The, the customer onboarding process is quite high tech. I've experienced it myself, the facial recognition technology, different, uh, different steps they have in place. It seems quite seamless and it, 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 I found it quite easy to, to do when I set, set an account up a few months ago. Yes. Is that, are, they, are they well positioned to compete in this area? I mean, Digital identity? They were the ones that had to come up to the same level as banks from a regulatory perspective on KYC onboarding. Uh, but because crypto is not mainstream, um, you know, there could be another funnel to provide the identity data. But what we usually see, certainly if we just use the UK, is that those people that own crypto tend to have a bank account and vice versa. And so given that the bank account has become more ubiquitous and we've done, obviously we have European laws that give access to a basic payment account to anyone in the country, um, you know, starting from that most common denominator is probably the easiest because that's subject to the highest banking regulation already. So looking forward five or 10 years, you think that bank uh, issue, digital ID is going to be a, still be a key part of the way things operate? As long as banks are regulated as heavily as they are, there would be a natural way to use that regulation and trust. There will certainly be competing models. I mean, we know that Facebook wants to go into the identity space in a slightly different way with a slightly different motivation. Um, surely we have some other behemoths that want to play in identity. So we will probably see competing models. But we do see in the Nordics the bank ID model working very well. It's been used by everyone for any type of online activity. And I think the question is, if customers still trust their bank and if they still have data and money in the bank, it could be yet another service the banks could provide to the customer. So for once, it would be an option for the banks to innovate and provide something that the customer actually benefits from. And the surveys, as far as I know, tend to say that even though banks have got a, generally a bad reputation, people do trust them to exactly. their identity. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's having the trust in the bank and also reducing a little bit your personal risk of putting identity information in too many buckets. If you work and sign up with all these third parties and all these commerce websites and they all hold your private data, you obviously have exposed yourself to multiple hack risks. 
if you keep the data within the bank and with consent share specific data per transaction in that context cryptographically sealed then of course the data theft risk is a much lower risk. You mentioned earlier that certain skills or the roles of certain intermediaries are going to be probably obsolete in the now the blockchain technology has been invented and is being explored. What kind of skills could people develop or what, what uh, skills do institutions need to have to prosper in this, uh, in this type of economy? I mean, we've certainly seen an increase in the need for data scientists and that's maybe more linked to the fact that banks sit on a lot of data and a lot of old infrastructure. And in order to really use the data as a new oil, you need to mobilize the data structure and make it really intelligible and be able to query it with simple and more sophisticated AI type of algorithms. So data science is, is a cru crucial ingredient that banks are stocking up on now, which was not a traditional skill set. And we talk about the sort of infrastructural uh, distributed ledger type. There has to be a choice by the market where you want to use such a database with specific features versus where you want to keep the old database model and just refresh your technology and your data. So um, there, there are multiple models, but I would say at the core it's more data science and it's coding, being able to understand how to code and how certain things are being developed in networks. People are now using open source standards. I mean, obviously a lot of the blockchain stuff is also open source. Even the UK open banking is done with open ID, open source data. So I think having skill sets in that area will be crucial. But this idea of open source access to certain sets of data, that must be quite difficult for certain uh, institutions to come to terms with. I, I've worked in banking in the past and I, it, it's a very, it used to be a very adversarial environment. People didn't trust their competitors on any particular trade. So suddenly working in a consortium with 20 or 30 other institutions must be a challenge for uh, some of these institutions. Yeah, so it's, it's a choice as to when you use open source information and when it's sort of a common standard you develop across a network and you obviously co-develop to improve it over time. That would be a classical case for open source. Otherwise, you may develop something, take, take it from open source and refine it yourself and you make it proprietary inside. So it depends on the different business models. But in any network industry, you need a network standard. You need a common standard. And of course, with technology moving, these standards can become more sophisticated with bigger data sets, very much the opposite to what we had for hundreds of years with 140 character Swift messages. So we can do more now. And you know, every bank has to basically work on the internal IT upgrades, data analytics, uh, in order to be able to participate in these improved infrastructures and messages. So we need more creative thinking in, in banks, IT departments. And we, and we need to truly um, switch from the old IT core infrastructures to new ones. And that is the hardest part because the bigger you are, the bigger your iceberg under the water in terms of that challenge. And, and that has, we've seen that people are starting to do it, but it's still very slow. And as long as people have vested interests and connections that they don't need to change too much, it works. But at some point they may be overtaken. What do you think are the prospects for Facebook's Libra project to get off the ground? It hasn't had a very warm reception from uh, anybody. Yes, so um, I'm sort of a little bit in two minds on this because uh, I don't think it was naturally, naturally a financial inclusion initiative given the, the makeup of the consortium itself. Um, I also haven't really seen any viable technology proposal yet. Everything is very high level. Um, and of course, it operates de facto as a stable coin. It should be regulated like e-money, right? Because it requires that if you want to redeem it back, you have the right to redeem it at any time. And 
there's no intention on, on, on that consortium side to have it regulated in such a way because obviously it would increase obligations. Also the actual uh, stability would be assured according to their papers by a mixed basket of you know securities, currencies, whatever it may be where you would have to measure that mark to market if you apply Basel rules. So the question is how would you measure and make sure that these things are stable and transparent and this can only happen if you actually regulate this entity, potentially with a mix of prudential banking regulation as well as sort of e-money regulation. And I don't think there's a big willingness on, on that uh, consortium side to have that done and that's why we will see where this is going. And as we approach 2020, any key trends for us to keep our eyes on for next year? Yeah, I think we will start to see bigger scale token economy type platforms being launched, even by traditional institutions, maybe initially as smaller scale private placement areas. I think we start to see more uh, central bank digital currency projects. We've seen some in various disguises, usually small scale. I think we will see more coming out of China on that one as well. Um, and I think we will see um, an increase for better data, cleaner data, data analytics and also data modeling, um, risk modeling, because that is something that people will need to do a lot more on. Um, there are predictions that there's some financial crisis looming again. We don't know exactly from where it will come. But I think people have to get much better at controlling their own data. Data privacy will become a bigger theme in that as well and modeling the risk around it. Ruth, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to this new Money Review podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. New Money Review's articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com at the bottom right of our homepage.